Don Shula from John Carroll to the <laughs> secondaries of the NFL to the top of the NFL, really, as the, as the great coach of the Colts, is a long way to go. Well, the only thing I can say is that I'm just so proud of our football team and our coaching staff and everybody connected uh, with our organization from Carol Rosenblum, our owner, on down. And this this didn't happen out there. It was a, uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of frustration through the years. I think that our football team, since I've been here, has been disappointed more than any other football team has. We've played well, yet we've never reaped the harvest. And today is a day that we're going to relax and enjoy it a little bit. And uh, I just think that uh, we deserve to win. We've played well all year long, and today was the climax. Don, uh, Billy Nelson bought his offensive line steaks last week to get him the block. Uh, are you going to buy this entire ball club uh, champagne and steaks? Yeah, we've got a little something planned tonight, and we're going to do a little buying and relaxing and celebrating. And, uh, boy, they certainly deserve it. But uh, we still got our eye on one more ball game, and that's going to be the 12th uh, down in Miami. And we're going to be thinking a little bit about that Don, after tonight. Don, what about a ball club now? Let's say you've had disappointments, and you have. You lose one last year, and you lose it all. You lose a playoff game to... Green Bay once and you lost it all. Uh, how do you get them back and start it again the next season? Well, what do you the thing them? that I've always uh, stressed is that uh, anybody that feels sorry for themselves and starts making excuses are losers, and we don't like to have losers around our winning people. And the thing that we've done is try to get it out of our mind. As soon as it's over with last year, it was tough uh, when we got knocked out of it, but what good does it do you to moan and to bellyache about the thing? The only thing we try to do, our whole theme from training camp on, was to be better. And we wanted to be, be be better than we were last year, and as it's turned out, uh, we are better. I remember last year at the Pro Bowl, I asked you what you needed, and you said just one more victory. <laughs> right. Wanted, yeah, we didn't win enough last year. We won uh, a little bit more this year, and that's why we're here right now. And I'm just, again, so proud of our football players. Don Sheila, you didn't do any alibi, and when it was the bad times, you took them in stride, and you did bring this ball club on, and I think that might be the reason that the entire nation is so darn proud of you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very Don much. Don Sheila, the head coach of the Baltimore Colts, and a great one. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, everybody. How are you? Nice to uh, see you again or hear you again or, or you know, whatever, touch base and uh, be in your earbuds again. And uh, we appreciate you uh, giving us uh, a listen in the wild and wacky world of podcast uh, choices that you have available to you. And uh, you no doubt know by now that you have stumbled into uh, the podcast that we call Good Seats Still Available. Again, our curious little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. And uh, the little clip you heard there at the uh, top of our little show uh, is from the 1968 NFL championship game. And yes, that was the uh, penultimate uh, game. Uh, before the end of the full season, that is the 1969 Super Bowl three, uh, where the uh, New York Jets, uh, in a stunning and upset fashion, uh, defeated the uh, Baltimore Colts, who at the end of this game. And you just heard uh, Tom Brookshire uh, behind the CBS microphones interviewing head coach of the Baltimore Colts, Don Shula, uh, having just won and uh, and handily so against the Cleveland Browns. I think it was 34 to nothing. Uh, the NFL title game and of course that game was the uh uh the uh, the title game for the uh, for the NFL and of course the prelude to what ultimately became the uh the Super Bowl championship that uh, they later lost uh in again stunning fashion and uh that is the topic not specifically that game or this season uh but the Baltimore Colts of the 1960s and in particular uh period of time during the 1960s 
when uh, Baltimore, the Colts, uh, were probably, uh, with the uh, possible exception of the Green Bay Packers, uh, the most dominant and uh, uh, star-studded and uh, successful teams in the National Football League. And uh, we're going to be talking about, in particular, two of the brightest lights of that franchise and, uh, let's say, some of the friction uh, that came between them, that being head coach Don Shula and, of course, uh, perhaps one of the greatest quarterbacks, maybe greatest players of all time, uh, played for the Colts at that time, uh, Johnny Unitas. And the the discussion uh, is uh, the one that we're going to have about them, the Colts, and 1960s football. Uh, with our uh, our guest, Jack Gilden, he, the author of Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the rise of the modern NFL. This is a fascinating tale, uh, not just only about a team that doesn't exist in the uh, in Baltimore anymore, the Colts, uh, but two legends of the game. Uh, Don Shula, certainly as a, as a head coach, but obviously a player beforehand. And uh, Johnny Unitas, again, regarded by many as uh, the consummate uh, example of uh, star material when it comes to NFL quarterbacks. Uh, and it's some very interesting stories and uh, – and storylines that we get into uh, with our guest Jack Gilden in, in a couple of minutes uh, about sort of how these two legends uh, got along or didn't get along and uh, forged uh, perhaps some of the best and most uh, successful football of the era uh, in Baltimore playing for and coaching the Colts. And we're going to get into all of that uh, in a couple of seconds with our chat with Jack in just a couple of seconds. Stay tuned. You're going to learn a whole bunch uh, the, as I did. And uh, this is a fascinating topic, a great conversation, and it's a hell of a book too, by the way. Uh, let's get some promotional stuff out of the way before we get into it, shall we? Uh, I want to say thank you and uh, hello to three of our awesome sponsors. They're all sports related. They all have uh, really cool stuff for you to uh, consider and to enjoy. And of course, we've got promo codes for all of them. And we highly encourage you to check out their wares uh, now, why don't you? Maybe you could pause the show and go visit these sites. Uh, first uh, is OldSchoolShirts.com. OldSchoolShirts.com. Our friend P.F. Wilson uh, and team in Cincinnati. Uh, great, high-quality, distressed uh, T-shirts uh, that uh, just literally go back in the day uh, with great logos and great remembrances of teams uh, and leagues uh, no longer with us, but also very cool cultural things like radio stations and uh, shopping malls and other sort of uh, paraphernalia, if you will, not paraphernalia, but uh, memorabilia, if you will, or memories. There you go. It's been a long day, friends. Give me a break. Uh, and uh, you will uh, you will get lost in all of the cool uh, logos and memories that Old School Shirts has for you. OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, check them out. Uh, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy uh, all that is uh, to be had there. And some very fair pricing as well. And make sure you use that promo code GOODSEATS and get 10% off all of your purchases there at oldschoolshirts.com. Some really cool stuff. No Baltimore Colts stuff. I think the Colts logo is still pretty much the domain of the NFL and a little harder to kind of replicate. But uh, I'm sure as heck you're going to find some other stuff there from uh, other NFL teams no longer with us and AFL as well. As well, uh, you will find at sportshistorycollectibles.com, I'm pretty sure, pretty darn sure, you're going to find some stuff from the old Baltimore Colts, Colts of the... 1960s, but also just the entire history of that franchise. And sportshistorycollectibles.com, like the name implies, is the place to find all kinds of great memorabilia. There's the word I was trying to find for this one. 
uh, where uh, you're going to find buttons and T-shirts, not T-shirts. Well, maybe some T-shirts, some clothing items, uh, but pennants and buttons and uh, media guides and uh, various uh, uh, publications of your about teams and leagues of your. Uh, and they're all there for you at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Dean Mitchell and friends uh, do a yeoman's-like uh, job putting together uh, really, uh, really cool photography of these items. Uh, and they're just a, a marvel just to kind of click through and, and, and look at. Uh, but uh, indeed, uh, some of those items are going to be just uh, too darn uh, tempting to not own for yourself. And when you decide you're going to make that uh, commitment, make sure you use the promo code uh, that we've got there. Uh, also, good seats. Uh, and you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And uh, I guarantee you'll find some cool stuff there and probably some cult stuff. So uh, go for it and uh, check them out. Sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS. And one last one, our relatively new sponsors, who we love tremendously from Portland, Oregon, uh, the beautiful part of the, the of our great nation that uh, uh, spawns the, the site 503 Sports. And that's 503-sports.com or 503-sports.com, depending on your per, your persuasion, your grammatical uh, inclinations. 503 Sports uh, considers themselves, and I would argue they are absolutely this, the king of throwbacks. And uh, not only do they have T-shirts with great logos and stuff, but also handcrafted uniforms, uh, replica uh, and, and uh, uh, painstakingly made from you know, kind of leagues and teams uh, no longer with us, uh, including things like uh, in football, the XFL and the World League of American Football and, uh, you know, uh, the USFL. You're going to find jerseys that are made with uh, with uh, fine, not only craftsmanship, but also attention to detail uh, in uh, helping to bring back the memories of some of these great teams and leagues or frankly, maybe not so great teams and leagues. Uh, but uh, man, oh, man, this is going to make you uh, stand out uh, in the uh, in the arena or uh, at work or on the go. Uh, you should check them out. They're the king of throwbacks, we call them. Uh, and it's 503 Sports. 503, get it. That's the area code of the Portland, Oregon area. And uh, their website is 503-sports.com or 503-sports.com. And yes, of course, we have a promo code for you there, too. And that's the promo code SEATS, just the word SEATS. And you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there at 503 Sports. Again, 503- or dash, you you choose, 503-sports.com. And we thank them for joining the uh, the growing array of sponsors here on this little show. We, uh, we appreciate them and you checking them out. All right. We are uh, going to now get into uh, football, arguably uh, one of the great decades of, of professional football. This time, the NFL variety, but uh, in particular, the Baltimore Colts. And the two uh, cogs, the key guys, uh, sort of chafing and uh, and uh, succeeding with those Baltimore Colts of the 1960s. Johnny Unitas and the coach, Don Shula, with our guest, Jack Gilden. Collision of Wills, that's the book. Here's our conversation. And the interest in the cults of the 60s in particular the uh the the zone of such that we're going to get into how does that come about and 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 your shall we say i guess uh, a determination to uh to put it into uh what i think is into a, a strong into not only a book but a very strong historical context well i just was fascinated by that time period and i was uh, uh, fascinated by that time period in football history both um, I, in my mind, it's the, the best era of professional football that there ever, ever was. 
is so many really great Hall of Famers, top shelf Hall of Famers playing in the 60s against each other. Plus, you had the additional component of the war between between the two leagues. So the, the football was certainly more than compelling enough. The story of Unitas and Shula came to me when I was uh, still a teenager, a high school student, and I went to a a uh, journalism conference put on by the Baltimore Colts for high school students. And there was a famous uh, old newspaper man that was there. His name was John Stedman, and he was one of the presenters. And he happened to mention offhandedly that Unitas and Shula didn't like each other. And I thought, well, that's so interesting because you take these two compelling men, both could make the case for being the greatest of all time, the, the greatest player, the greatest quarterback, and, and the other man uh, is definitely in the conversation of the greatest coach. Um, you know, I guess a lot of people feel like Vince Lombardi is, but Shula won more games than any other coach. He went to seven championship games, more than Vince Lombardi. He, he, uh, he won... Uh, he won two. He was the the architect of the perfect season. So he certainly has his credentials for greatest coach ever, too. And I thought it's so interesting that these two were on the same team together, didn't like each other. Uh, they won with greater regularity than, than Lombardi's Packers. They had a higher winning percentage than Lombardi's Packers, but they couldn't win the big one. And so I kind of thought I'd, I'd look into that and try and understand what happened there? How do how do two men so great walk away after seven seasons and not really achieve their ultimate goal? And I, I thought that that's a pretty interesting story. All right. So, what year was this uh, this encounter with this uh, with this journalist and, and and this little discovery, this little tidbit that he sort of offhandedly mentioned? Well, I, I guess if I was fifteen, that would have been around 1980, 1980, 1981, something like that. It was right right at the very end of the Colts the Colts reign in Baltimore. They were I would soon be in college and the Colts would soon be in Indianapolis. So what then before that sort of little magic spark of a moment, what did you what did you think of I guess looking backward and maybe a little bit of of, uh, uh, of, of knowledge, I guess, or maybe some even some fandom there, uh, about uh, not only the Colts but uh, this what was your perception of the relationship that it was sort of this magical uh, marriage of two, you know, uh, Titans of the game, if you will, uh, what was your original, what, what set you aback by that comment that, that, that they didn't get along with each other? Well, I, I guess that they were so well associated with each other and they were, they were both so, so great, you know, and their reputations were so gigantic in the league and deservedly so. So it set me aback to think that they spent that much time together and didn't like each other. However, I, I was always a reader. I was also a football player. I, I was uh, not a great athlete and I was tiny, but I played four years of high school football and uh, I started off as a quarterback, and I began playing quarterback by reading everything I could about the greatest quarterback, the man that I considered to be that. So I read everything I could about Johnny Unitas, and I tried to understand what made him, what made him so great. So in, in doing all of that reading, I began to see the Colts of 1959. They, they quickly were no longer champions. Their coach, who was hailed as a genius over and over was, was out of a job. 
And and then Shula came in, and of course Shula was very famous at the time that I started playing football. He was still a king in the league, and he he still had great teams. Uh, he was still a perennial Super Bowl contender, even though Zonka and, and uh, Warfield and those guys had moved on. And um, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what happens in that situation? First of all, how did the Colts of 58 and 59, that might have been the greatest team ever assembled, um, why? how did they slip from being so great to all of a sudden not being great anymore. What happens in a situation like that? So that intrigued me. And then I started looking into the next situation, and you looked at all of the great players, the layers of great players on those Colts teams, the great records they had, and I, I really was intrigued by the idea of, you know, what happened there? How is it that they that they didn't get where they wanted to go? In Baltimore, the mythology was is that they were merely a hard luck team that they had terrible luck in the 60s, and that's, that's what got them. In Baltimore, to this very day, to anybody who cares, to any real football fan, they talk about Super Bowl three like it was this horrible fluke and it wasn't possible, and you play them ten times, you know, ten times, and the Colts would beat them nine times, and, you know, and things like that. So I knew that there was like a hard crust of, uh, of mythology on all of this that was obscuring the truth. So I decided I would go in and look for the facts myself and and determine what the truth was. How did they lose their footing after the 50s and what happened in the 60s that prevented them from winning the title? Well, why don't we start there sort of in the late 50s, right? And I, I, I probably okay. the, the obvious sort of, uh, I guess, place that I, I suspect that you probably started or at least circled on your little journey there was the... Uh, their first NFL championship in 1958, uh, otherwise known, right, as that uh, greatest game ever played. The greatest game, right. Well, I didn't want to circle it too much because I, it had been so overly covered by by people who who viewed it with their own two eyes and ears, and they knew it better than I did. Even David Halberstam was working on a book about that game when he died. Uh, Mark Bowden had recently written a, a great uh, book about the 58 championship game. My own mentor, a great newspaper man here in Baltimore, a guy that I idolized named uh, Michael Olesker, he had written a lot about the Colts of the 50s. So I, I tried not to obsess on them so much because they everybody kind of knew their story through the eyes and, and ears. But instead, I, my focus on the 50s was what went wrong? You know, where, how did they go from being that, that back-to-back champion, that crusher, to all of a sudden uh, not having it anymore? How, how does that happen to a team is, is where I began. All right. So, so tell us then about that, right? So I guess, I guess you're okay. talking about 1960, right? Because they won 1960, correct. Two championships back-to-back, as you mentioned, 58 and 59. Um, maybe right. that's where we. That's maybe where the story kind of picks up or starts, right? Yeah, that, that, kind of. It it actually starts much earlier in the early 50s when Unitas and Shula are teammates. But l- let's come back to that for a second, and let's talk about how they lost it as a team because that's a very interesting story. And not, uh, I've been interviewed by a lot of people, but nobody's really asked me about that yet. So it, it might be something nice for for your listeners to hear, which was that. Uh, what happened there was that um, the Colts almost really became, uh, were almost destroyed by their own success in a way. So Unitas was so cinematic, so theatrical in that 58 champion 
ship game. He was outthinking everybody. And one particular man in, in really took notice of it. And that man was so intrigued by what Unitas was doing that he wanted to get into the game of, of uh, uh, football too. And that was Lamar Hunt. He watched the game, I believe, in a hotel room somewhere. And he was really intrigued by what those guys were accomplishing. So he, he, uh, he wanted to get into football. He tried to get an NFL franchise, and they wouldn't give him one. And so he, he started the AFL with, with some other investors that he got together. So in a very short span of time, he put that league together. So when that league came together, they had their own draft separate from the NFL draft in 1960. was their first draft. And, and uh, Weeb Eubank at that time knew that the Colts were getting old in certain ways and they needed new component parts. And um, now this is either the 1960 draft or the 61. You're going to have to forgive me because I don't have the information in front of me. But in one of those two drafts, it was either the first AFL draft or the second in 1960, Alan Amici, uh, the Colts' great fullback, tore his Achilles tendon. And so the Colts' great running game, the Colts were definitely well on their way to a third championship in a row. They were crushing the league when, when Amici went down. But when he did, it, it exposed the Colts. And the defenses no longer had to worry about their running game anymore. So they were teeing off on Johnny Unitas, and they're getting lots and you know a lot bigger jump on the pass rush, and they knew that the Colts had to rely on him to throw in order to win, and the Colts came limping out of that season. They they uh, they barely survived it, and they didn't uh, they didn't end up winning the um, the uh, the division, and I think they lost their last four games in a row after a brutal brutal game in Chicago. So then what happened is in the next draft. Uh, they, they were looking for new component parts. Amici were retired because of that injury. And, uh, and so they drafted Ron Mix, and he was a great tackle. And uh, they drafted um, – what's the name of that great, that great running back in Dallas in the 1960s? Can, can you think of his name? He, he was the Cowboys' first great running back. Oh, boy, now you got me. Yeah, it's jumped out of my head, but if we said his name, you would recognize it. All of your listeners would recognize it. But the Colts also drafted him late in the draft, like in the seventh round or something like that. So he went on to become like the third leading rusher in in NFL history. But because the Cowboys were coming into the league and fighting an AFL team in, in, in the Dallas market, the league gave them this great running back. I, I wish his name wasn't jumping out of my head at the moment. So the Colts lost that running back. Ron Mix uh, signed with the Chargers instead of the Colts. And then I think the Colts' other next three draft picks, three or four, all signed with AFL teams as well. And so the Colts were being stingy with the money because they were never in, in a situation before where they had to worry about it. And to them, they were arrogant. They believed that great players were their divine right and that they didn't need, they didn't need to sign these players. Well, most of these guys ended up as AFL all-stars and Mix ended up in the Hall of Fame and, uh, and the running back they needed went walking off to Dallas because the NFL gave it to that franchise and only uh, compensated the Colts with another seventh-round pick or something like that. So a gigantic amount of talent went walking out the door in that, in that very next draft just as the Colts needed it the most. And so the Colts general manager, he was compensated. He was compensated 
uh, with a bonus for turning a profit. And so he wasn't about to get in a bidding war with the AFL for the players. He, he could care less. So that played a big role in those guys leaving and, and going to the AFL instead of signing with the Colts. And that was the genesis of the Colts going downhill. At the exact same time, the Packers under Lombardi, they were owned by the city and not by a, an oligarch like, like the Colts owner, Carol Rosenblum. And their mandate was to spend the money on the players. So the Packers, even though they were in the smallest market, weirdly had the most money to sign players. And they had a, a genius in, in their front office, um, uh, a guy named Jack Vanisi, who, who had been picking great players for them for years, but they were going un, undeveloped. So bringing in both Lombardi to develop them and having the money to sign them when the war set in with the AFL, the Packers ascended with talent and the Colts started to lose talent. And that was how the big change in power, the big shift in power in the NFL happened. That's how it went from, from the Colts to the Packers. People think, oh, Vince Lombardi was a miracle worker. He was like Moses, you know, he parted the Red Sea. But, he, but it wasn't like that. There were tangible reasons why he ascended and why, why Eubank uh, fell back. And so, you know, three years later, Lombardi went to three championship games and won two of them, and, and Eubank was fired, and it was, was really humiliating for him. Not only did he get fired by the Colts, but nobody else in the league had wanted him, and the Colts dynasty was, was dead. And that, that was how it happened. Well, so this is, okay, so then, you know, as, as this sort of is playing out, um, uh, tell us about how Don Shula comes into the mix, and maybe before doing so, you can go back to your earlier point of reference, which I didn't even know. Uh, that they he, were teammates? Shula and Johnny, Johnny Nice for one year were actually teammates on the Baltimore Colts. That's, that's correct. And, and not only that, but Shula was very popular with his defensive teammates. And one in particular, a guy named Gino Marchetti, who was about the greatest defensive end who, who ever lived. So, so he was good friends with those guys. And Shula himself was a, was a pretty good cornerback, halfback, as they used to call him in that time, in the league, a defensive halfback for, for several years. He, I think uh, for two of his years with the Colts, he averaged five interceptions per season. And he, he was a pretty good player, but he was not a good athlete. And he, call, he was the quarterback on defense and called the plays for the Colts. And he would call the plays to a certain extent to set himself up to succeed. So he was always... He knew how to position himself. He was very smart, and he was successful in that way. Well, when Unitas and Raymond Barry came onto the team, they were both total nobodies. Uh, Barry was a very late pick, like an 18th-round pick or something crazy like that. Had almost no stats in college. He played defense as much as offense in college. He definitely wasn't a defensive end in the NFL. They knew that. But Eubank was just almost a genius level talent evaluator and he saw something in Barry. He also saw something in Unitas that nobody else saw. Everybody thought, well that was a miracle that he pulled it out of his his, uh, his rear end. You know, he found this guy off of a sand lot and he turned out to be so great. Well in reality they knew he was coming. They had spoken to his college coach. Weeb was very well connected with college coaches and NFL coaches and he was always getting information from all of these guys. And so Unitas' old coach at Louisville had called the Colts and said, look, we, this guy Unitas is going to come for your tryout day, and said, don't discount him. The Steelers never gave him a chance. 
I coached him in college, and he's he's really really good. And then as soon as they got there, they could see that 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 guy knew what he was talking about. So we put Barry and Unitas off to one side together, had them practice together, and then their own work ethics and their their innovative ideas came to the table, and they were really, you know, developing incredible timing together. And then they're lining up against Shula every day in practice, and all of a sudden they start to light him up, and they're, they're, they're connecting on passes over his head and – and everybody could see that Don Shula didn't really have it as a defensive back in a, in a more modern NFL. He he didn't quite have the speed to exist in that world, let alone against these two brilliant guys who who had this this weird chemistry with each other. So that was the beginning of the end for Shula. He eventually got cut. He, the rumor was he he was so pissed that he. He, he put on sunglasses and wa- had to walk past the entire team when he was cut. And he walks out to his car and he uh, gets in there. And instead of going home, he drives around the Baltimore Beltway over and over again to avoid going home and to blow off steam. But the players all thought he was going to come back and punch Eubank in the nose. So he goes, he resurfaces with the Redskins that same season. And the Colts happened to play the Redskins that season. And uh, and they just they really lit him up in, in this game. Barry had 250 yards receiving. It was the first big game of his career. He had two touchdowns. And I said to Shula, I sat on his personal sofa and said, "What what happened in that game?" He said, "Well, he said I vowed that they would not get any big long gainers over my head." I said, "So what happened then?" He said, "Well, they uh, they completed quite a few right in front of me." And that that was an understatement. So there was kind of that component to uh, to the United Shula relationship right off the bat, where they were adversaries and they were both hungry for success, and they were fighting each other for it, and and one far outshone the other. And so then when Shula, after that performance, Shula was out of football for good as a player at the end of the year. He's only 26 or 27 years old. And he started his career as an anonymous assistant coach. I think he went to Virginia at first, and then he ended up with Blanton Collier in Kentucky. And then he ended up uh, as the defensive coordinator of the Detroit Lions and reentered the league. So uh, going back to that uh, that year that they were <clears throat> essentially teammates, um, what, aside from sort of the um, the back and forth of an offensive unit versus a defensive unit in practice and sort of the the hard knocks and and obviously uh, the the talent of a Unitas uh, against a and Barry and Barry and 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 maybe a waning talent in in Ashula on the defensive side. Uh, was there any evidence that, that you could tell of any uh, personal connection and or animosity between the two specifically, or was this more of just a a you know part of the overall sort of training and. You know, well, you had to read between the lines to to figure it out because nobody really wanted to come right out and say that that existed, it, from, especially from that mundane reason. You know, well, well, we're professionals. We don't even think about who we're lining up against. You know, I heard things like that. And uh, so you had to read between the lines. So on the one hand, Raymond Berry would say, oh, no, I, d- I didn't even realize I was lining up against Shula. But on the other hand, he's saying – Oh well, these two were the most off-the-chart competitors I'd ever, I'd ever uh, seen in my you know fifty-some years of professional football, you know, because he was a coach for many, many years after his playing career ended. So these were the two most competitive men I'd ever met in football. 
So you can imagine, I mean, they're lighting him up. You heard how he had to put on the sunglasses. He rode around the beltway. Everybody thought he was such a red ass. He was so pissed. He's got to come back and, uh, and punch a, the head coach in the nose. I mean, there was clearly, they were rubbing each other the wrong way. They were competing, and, and they were rubbing each other the wrong way. There's, there's just no doubt about it. All right, so how does Shula uh, enter the picture as uh, a head coach? Because if I'm not mistaken, uh, when he joined the Colts in 63, uh, this was his, was this, is this correct? Do I have this correct? This was his first pro football head coaching job. It was his first head coaching job at any level, any level. and was never even so much as a, as a peewee head coach. So the, he entered the picture in this way. So you think of ethnic rivalries in the old days as being primarily black people and white people or Gentiles and Jews or, you know, maybe Irish and Italians fighting each other in New York or something like that. But the Colts team had had uh, an ethnic rivalry between Protestants and Catholics. And Eubank was Protestant, and uh, Marchetti and, and uh, uh, the two other defensive players were also Catholic, and Eubank felt that they had it in for him. And they were bad-mouthing him back to Rosenblum and lobbying to get him fired, and the guy they wanted to hire was another Roman Catholic, and that was Shula. So when they presented the idea... It was of uh, of uh, hiring Shula to uh, Rosenblum. Rosenblum responded. He said, "You mean that guy that was here that wasn't very good?" And that that was how he had remembered Shula. So, but the reality was is that Shula was was really uh, um, distinguishing himself as a defensive coordinator with the Lions. In in. Uh, I, mean, I think it's 1962, the Packers had one of the greatest seasons any team had ever had. They led the league in offense, led the league in defense, uh, both with, with numbers that were historical. And, uh, and they only lost one game all season, and that was to the, to the Detroit Lions. So uh, in the first game, they, they played each other twice a year because they're in the same division, and in the first game, uh, the Packers never scored a touchdown against Shula's defense, even though they had this great, this juggernaut offense. They, I think they beat them nine to seven or something like that. And in the second game, um, in the second game, the Packers did score a touchdown, but the Lions beat the Packers and were the only team to do so all year. And I think the Packers were only able to get one touchdown in that game. So, Shula was was showing that he could solve Lombardi's offense. And then uh, when he was playing the Colts, uh, they were beating the Colts regularly. The Detroit Lions were beating the Colts regularly, and Johnny Yu was having terrible games against Shula's defense. So he was showing that he could solve Unitas. He was showing that he could solve uh, uh, the, the, the Green Bay sweep. And so he really was distinguishing himself. But again, the the uh, um, mythology is is that he just came out of nowhere, this young 33-year-old kid that Rosenblum was a genius who just knew how to make the right moves, and Shula came out of nowhere to be head coach. And But in reality, he was a very, very fine defensive coordinator, and if you followed the league, you knew it. So why do you think Rosenblum decided to, to take that chance? I mean, he's quoted as saying, you know, he was going out on a limb to take somebody, you know, a, a coach – in Shula, so young and so unproven, albeit 
you know, helping the the, the, uh, the Lions uh, on the defensive front for sure in a quite standout way. Still quite a big risk for a guy, Rosenblum, right, who had, you know, had seen the Colts, uh, uh, I don't know if he owned the team at the time, the 58-59, you know, uh, winning championships and stuff. I mean, I, you know, and and that little toss-away comment, right, that, you know, Shula wasn't all that great a player. Um, well, what do you think tipped the scale towards Shula versus – I would imagine well, a pretty decent amount of talent out there to otherwise in the coaching ranks. I think that there there there's no one silver bullet answer to your question, but there are a lot of factors that, that lead up to it. So for instance, he was, it, Rosenblum did seem to be fearless when it came to making decisions. He hired Eubank when Eubank was a young, was a young assistant coach and unheralded everybody on on Paul Brown's coaching staff everybody assumed that Blanton Collier was the was the star assistant and in fact Rosenblum tried to hire Blanton Collier but Collier didn't want to come to the Colts so then he set his sights on on Eubank he ended up getting him through a series of manipulations and Eubank really in my opinion he turned out to be I, I would put my vote to him as the greatest coach of all time for a lot of reasons so Rosenblum was fearless, and, and he made smart decisions. I don't know how he did it or where his, his intelligence about football came from. He, he played football himself in college, but, but he had a knack. And so he, pit, he plucked Weeb Eubank out, brought him on, and he turned out to be great. At the time that Weeb left, Weeb had three lackluster seasons in a row that may not have been totally his fault, but the fans were on him. Uh, Unitas's career again. Here's another mythology of Johnny U. You know the un the he wears armor. He's unassailable. But he had three bad seasons there, really. And he, in fact, his interceptions were were pacing his touchdown passes, uh, and in some cases, outdistancing his touchdown passes. So he really had become almost mediocre in a way. And at least statistically speaking, and so uh, and then Weeb had also uh, infuriated the fans because in trying to finally solve the running back problem that was plaguing them, he took Lenny Moore out of the uh, his role as a flanker and made him uh, a halfback, a full-time halfback, and the fans were infuriated by that because he was such a weapon in the passing game, super fast. He he had numbers in the in the fifties and in the sixties, like Megatron had in the, you know, long after the rules changed. So he, he was really a great, great receiver. And uh, so we traded big daddy to get Jimmy Orr from the, um, from the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Orr was a great player a real, real find. And he moved um, Lenny Moore to halfback. And it was such a brilliant, a brilliant um, manipulation it was really an intelligent problem solving exercise but an enrage of fans. And so a lot of things started to stack up against Weeb. The team was basically a 500 team for about three years in a row. And so his fate was sealed. And then Shula, as I said, was distinguishing himself. And, and, uh, and the players on the team were really uh, advocating for him. And so that was how, how it all came together. Interestingly, um, the one mistake Rosenblum made, though, was – not really thinking how uh, the chemistry between Shula and Unitas might be, given that they were basically the same age and and uh, had been teammates and and competitors, and it never really occurred to him to look into that one aspect, and that really that was the real undoing of the whole thing. 
So that's interesting, and I, I maybe helps uh, uh, inform sort of the conversation as we take it further. They were basically the same age, and here you are, you know, a player who uh, in Unitas, right, who was quite uh, well regarded, maybe having a, a, a rough patch, but as we'll talk about in a minute, uh, re, you know, uh, reclimbs the mountain, so to speak, and, and then some uh, on, a, on what ultimately became a Hall of Fame and very legendary career with a young coach, right, who has a very, you know, little background, right, as, as a, certainly as a head coach uh, and not and a mediocre player at that. So um, may, maybe a little description of what your sense of their initial – um uh, uh uh i guess reunion was like um oh, yeah it, it wasn't good wasn't good and it, right off the bat it was bad shula was constantly sticking his face in the huddles to listen to johnny you call the plays he expanded the playbook and the nomenclature of the plays was very very uh confusing and long-winded um and uh and he didn't trust John. Johnny used the whole fame was really made more than his arm was made with his brain. And as a great play caller and Shula right from the beginning, didn't, uh, didn't really trust him to call the plays. He wanted to be the principal play caller from the, from the sidelines like Paul Brown had been. And so there was that really giant tension between them. And then to exacerbate it in the very first game they ever played together as coach and, and quarterback, it was a, uh, what was then called an exhibition game, a, a preseason game in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And the Colts played the Philadelphia Eagles, and they were beating them by something like five points with time running out. Unitas had to only hand the ball off to a running back and run the clock out, and, and the Colts would win the game. But instead, the Eagles cornerback taunted Johnny Yu and kept taunting him and taunting him and telling him to throw the ball at him. And so Johnny Yu took the bait heaved up a long pass to Jimmy Orr in front of this guy and he and he picked it off and ran to within like about 10 or 5 yards of the end zone the winning score before Jimmy had followed him all the way down and uh, tripped him up before he could score and, pre- and preserve the victory and it was only a preseason game but you could see it was the roots of mistrust <laughs> between those two We're going to take a quick little break here and uh, we got to pay some bills and uh, we want to thank our friends at my bookie for helping us pay some of those bills. It's football season friends. Uh, and as you know, football is probably the most uh, exciting and uh, most wagerable sports there. There are is whatever, you know, what I'm talking about. And uh, there's no better place to uh, experience some of that wagering fun and, uh, and good, good, good lines and payouts than my bookie mybookie.ag that's the actual website to go to and uh, we want to encourage you to uh, give it a try because if you use the promo code seats uh, with your initial deposit you're going to get matched dollar for dollar up to a thousand bucks for your initial deposit that basically means two grand for the one thousand that you put in if you do the maximum to uh, use for uh, your betting purposes right and you want to bet on any game national football league it's college football uh, all kinds of other sports, both uh, domestic and international. Uh, you can try uh, your luck uh, at betting with MyBookie, mybookie.ag, and you're going to use that promo code SEATS, and you're going to get dollar-for-dollar matching uh, for your initial deposit 
all the way up to a thousand bucks. And uh, there's, uh, you know, no lack of excitement now that uh, sports gambling is effectively legalized here in the United States. It's going to be a very interesting experiment. And again, I, you can't, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to bet on any of the games and the teams and the leagues that we talk about on this little show. But let's assume that uh, you don't always live in the past. And uh, you uh, you do live in the present, and uh, you, you've got an inkling, you've got a hunch, you just know that uh, a certain team, hell, even fantasy points and uh, and scenarios are bettable uh, at my bookie. So uh, give that a try. And again, if you're looking at a game, you just think you just got an inside uh, track on, my bookie is the place to go at mybookie.ag. And make sure when you uh, sign up, again, use that promo code SEATS, and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar up to a thousand bucks. And uh, we uh, encourage you to give them a try and uh, enjoy the extra dollars uh, on us. And uh, good luck as you uh, make your way through the NFL and college football seasons. Uh, We wish you the best. MyBookie, that's MyBookie.ag. And we thank them for their support of our little show. And of course, we go back to our conversation right now. Delving into those roots, right? So do you think this was Unitas uh, disrespecting Shula in that Unitas was, I think by all accounts, the the better, more superior and long-lasting player? Or do you think this was a bit of Shula kind of saying, you know, you're disrespecting me because even though we're about the same age and we're former teammates, you know, for like it, for better or for worse, I'm the coach here. And the relationship is that, you know, the coach runs the team, not the quarterback. Well, I don't know if disrespecting is exactly the right word, although I know why you use it and, 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 uh, and everybody might see it that way, but it was, I mean, it was a little bit more complex than that. For instance, Shula described for me himself what it was like to, to be Johnny Yu's coach. He, he was like, well, here was a guy who knew our offense better than anybody in the world. I mean, he knew it inside and out. He was a thoroughly prepared player. He, he really knew everything about, about the, that Cleveland offense that we ran. But, uh, you know, I, it was my job to go in and kind of, kind of say, well, I want to do things this way and this is the way we're going to do it. And I had to be super prepared myself for every meeting that I went into with him. And, uh, and I had to try and convince him that the, the things that I was advocating for were going to really help the team. So you could see that he, I mean, this is, you're talking about, I don't know, what, 50, 50 some years later, 60 years later, and he can still remember the discomfort he felt walking into a room with the guy when he first started coaching him. So it wasn't disrespect so much, but there was just this unease and this, this uh, you know weird balance of power between them that went back to their pecking order as, as players and also uh, how how they viewed themselves currently. Tom Maddy, the running back, said, "Well, Shula viewed himself as the head coach of the team, but Unitas viewed viewed Shula as the head coach of the defense and himself as the head coach of the offense." Ah, that's so. I get okay. So that, that that's, that's how they saw it. Right. So okay. So that's that's a. Wait. So I said that to Shula, by the way. I, I used that exact expression with him, and you know, he has an old man. He's like eighty-five years old, and it still made the hair on his neck stand up to to hear that. You know, I, I felt uncomfortable even even saying it to him. You know, because it's so preposterous. There's the winningest coach in history, and then here I am telling him that one of his players said, "Well, 
Well, uh, the most famous player that ever played for him didn't view him as the head coach. He viewed him as the head coach of the defense. He didn't like hearing that at all, as, as you can imagine. Well, based on your research and your conversations, um, give us a sense of the 63 first season of the two of them together. And what 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 seems to me, I don't know if it's a dramatic transformation, but but 1964, right, which seems like everything clicked. And, and both of them, ironically, uh, winning player, uh, well, uh, uh, most valuable player and most valuable coach uh, together, yeah. that team in 64. So 63... How how does it go? Is it sort of mutual coexistence or peaceful coexistence? And and well, what, no, I don't think so. Sixty four, would you say? Yeah, well, here let me explain what happened. So in sixty three, I don't think it was so peaceful, and I think it was a really scary year for both of them because they started off playing really poorly, and uh, uh, Lenny Moore was a big factor in it because they were really counting on him to revive that running game. He had terrible. Uh, um, concussions, concussive sy- symptoms, and uh, couldn't play. And they were they were very very um, unsympathetic to his problems. They were calling him trade bait, and they were questioning his will to work and to win. And uh, and he, Lenny himself felt that it was all very uh, race racist. He thought there were racial overtones to <laughs> to the I- very idea that he would be considered lazy or not trying and that they didn't care about how he was feeling, but, and it affected the team results. And they, I can't remember, I'm not looking at any stats in front of me, but they started off very poorly. One of the things that happened was, is that Shula kind of created the idea that we're going to win first down. And to him winning first down, I guess was getting four yards or more by, by running the football and then making it easier for you to get that, that first down, you know, after that. And, uh, so he really tried hard to resuscitate that running game, and and uh, and there were good running backs on the team. So besides Lenny Moore, including Tom Matty, who was a, I believe a rookie that year, and 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 others, I think they made the trade for Joe Don Looney, and uh, and they had other young players. Weeb left the team stocked with talent. So um, so uh, you know it started off poorly. And, and Unitas loved the pass. Shula wanted to have a run-first offense and reestablish that. And uh, eventually, they did really reestablish that running game. And by the season's end, the Colts had finished in third place again, where they had the year before. They won one game more with Shula than they had the previous year under Eubank. And uh, they looked like a contender again. It, 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 it all turned around for them. And Unitas' statistics were vastly better. He had something like half the interceptions that he'd had the previous season. And you could see they were going in the right direction. But under the surface, there was the tension between them. And then in 64, the tension seemed to be totally gone because they were so successful all the way through it. They were just winning, winning, winning from day one. They beat the Packers twice. Um, they, uh, I can't remember how many games they lost. I think two. I think one was to Minnesota or something like that. They probably beat the Bears twice. I can't remember, but they, they, they just plowed through that schedule. They killed everybody, and then, uh, and then they get to that championship game, and everything fell apart for them in that game where they were, they were gigantic favorites against the Browns. They end up losing twenty-seven to nothing, and it was hailed as the biggest upset in the history of the league up to that point. 
Yeah, but uh, but still, uh, individual accolades for both Shula and for Unitas that year. Yeah, oh yeah, well it was a great season, and again, now, like that Browns game was considered a fluke, but right in the very aftermath of it, what happened was, is, uh, was, uh, so the Colts lose 27 to nothing, they had terrible performances on offense and defense, but Shula t- says to the New York Times, well, we sure found out about their defense, didn't we? Well, the Browns had the lowest-ranked defense in the league, but they shut out Unitas. And so uh, the New York Times took that as he was taking a slam at Johnny U, and they said so right there. And and they also quoted an unnamed coach who said, well, the real problem was that that team was very poorly prepared. Well, I think that I think I can't prove it, but I think that unknown coach was Vince Lombardi taking a shot at Shula. So, you know, all of these simmering tensions of the of these two seasons really came together there and they kind of popped out after that that embarrassing loss in that game. So uh, the day-to-day or sort of the mechanics as we sort of segue sort of halfway through this process 1965 in a second. Um you mentioned before sort of the one feels like he's sort of the the uh, the owner and the overseer of the offense and the other maybe perhaps uh, defined or or being considered as maybe the sort of the defensive genius but uh, h- how would you sort of describe over these years sort of the the manner in which these two are 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 working together because arguably on some levels right this is working now certainly circa 64 um, there's no doubt it's working no doubt about it. and 63 too you know, like I said, Unitas's vicissitudes have been reversed. He, his, his interceptions went way down, and he, he looked again like the best player in football, even though he, he wasn't the MVP that year. I think Y.A. Tittle was probably. can't remember. But, you know, you could clearly see that he was, he was Unitas again. He was looking really, really good again, and the team looked, looked like it was, uh, you know, the way it played in the second half of the season, it looked like it was a title contender again going into 64. So there was, there was definitely a detente between them. And, and I'm sure that the peace was kept by that success, you know, that Unitas's career was, was improving. His statistics were improving and, uh, and the team was, was ever so slightly improving. So it, it created a certain detente, but that, that bandaid was ripped off after that 64 championship game. So um, let's uh, an interesting little asterisk that I want to get into because we've never really explored okay. this before, but this is this is pretty interesting and, and it's it's uh, uh, it's important because in 65 and 66 uh, the Colts were part of this. Um, obviously, both seasons uh, quite good and uh, and 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 arguably near or at the top, right? So, for example, in 66, yeah. right, finishing second to the Packers, uh, but then yeah. but but not winning or going into that sort of final sort of game is this thing called the playoff bowl. Do you want to explain this little interesting quirk in NFL? Yeah. The playoff bowl was, was a, a, a terrible idea. It was a stupid idea. I guess they probably just came up with it to make money, but it was in those days, they had two divisions. They had the East and the West, you know, and that made up the entire NFL at that time. And, uh, so they would have, at the end of the season, the winner of the East would play the winner of the West for the championship of the NFL. And then they had this thing called the playoff bowl, which was a second place finisher in each division would play each other in, in this game. And I guess they felt that the fans would find it intriguing and it would be another payday for them on television and at the box office. 
And so that's, that's where it came from. The players called it the toilet bowl. They thought it was embarrassing. Nobody wanted to play in that game. Yeah, interestingly, but uh, I, I look at some of the attendance figures, and it was—I uh, mean, I, like for example, the '65 game uh, in the Orange Bowl uh, was, I think, a packed house to watch uh, uh, to watch yeah, Baltimore well, play, uh, play I, that sort of game against the Dallas Cowboys. There was like sixty-five, almost sixty-six thousand people there. I, I didn't examine those statistics like you did, but I, I think it's a, a good sign of of the, what the rest of the book is about. You know, the rest of the title about the rise of the modern NFL. They were seeing that, that, you know, whatever they were throwing out there, the fans were eating it up. And for good reason, because, I, I mean, wouldn't you be intrigued to see Tom Landry and, and, the, and those Cowboys play against, uh, against Don Shula and Unitas and those Colts? I mean, those would be great games to see. But, but they made no sense from, us, from a um, competitive point of view, because why, does it, why would anybody want to play for third place? It's just, you know, with, with no chance at all to play for first or second place, it's just a ridiculous notion. But you can see that the, the fans already, that obsession was beginning and that love of everything to do with football. I think now there are uh, most uh, preseason NFL games are capable of pulling in bigger numbers than the World Series, you know, and that, that's the beginning of it. All right, well, so take us through the rest of uh, of this uh, overlap of uh, of these uh, uh, of these guys uh, playing and working with each other. 66, 67, 68, um, pretty uh, pretty strong and reliable franchise, right? On on both on the field as well as uh, in the coaching uh, side of things. Uh, Baltimore was essentially, you know, a tried and true power, if you will, for uh, for most of these years. Correct. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, if you Shula was in Baltimore for seven years, and if you throw out the first year as a mulligan and you throw out the last year as an anomaly because it was all falling apart, you have the five years in the middle of that sandwich, and they average two losses per year over those five years. Two losses over five years. It, it, I, I don't think that Belichick and Brady have ever done anything like that or I don't think Bart Starr and Lombardi had ever done anything like that. In 67 and, and 68, um, two of those five years, they, they averaged one loss per year. One loss per year for two years in a row. I think nobody had done that since one of George Hallis's monster teams in, in uh, like around the World War II era before. before. So I, I, they were they were achieving historic things. But I want to point out one thing to you. You talk about 67 and 68, but the real key to understanding the greatness of the Colts and maybe even some of the tensions and the psychology is the 1965 season. Because uh, it, it was, in my opinion, and I think I say something like this in the text of the book, it was the apex of professional football. It, it hit its highest moment in that season, and it, it's, it's never been quite as, quite as good ever again. And uh, so do you want to hear the story of that season? Yeah, and, and also uh, maybe also context, too. Uh, how much of that is the AFL playing uh, in parallel, would you say, to that, that statement? That created that great season? Yeah. Is that what you're asking? That How much did the AFL have to do with it? Yeah. I think the AFL had a lot to do with yeah. it. It's just like any other situation where, where there are competitors. I, I think that the NFL felt that need to assert its 
its uh, its dominance over the game. And I think uh, within the NFL, you had incredibly hot rivalries. That that Lombardi Shula rivalry was 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 incredibly good. I don't think that there's anything like the Colts and Packers rivalry of the '60s in the NFL today. Now you could look at a great rivalry like the like the Ravens and the Steelers have had in in the last 10 or 15 years, and it has been a, a, a fantastic rivalry. But when you look at the Colts and Packers, and you you look at all the Hall of Famers on on the field and in the sidelines. And, and there's just nothing like it. It's an incredible array of historic, legendary players clashing with each other and, and really creating the game through those clashes. Not just, not just playing the game, but creating the game, creating the fan interest in the game. It, it was all happening on those fields. So there's just nothing. I don't think before it or since it, there's never been a rivalry to match, to match that one. Well, and it probably um, uh, uh, came to a uh, uh, an example. Uh, a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, the the ultimate sort of expression, I guess, of that uh, was this December 26, 1965. Uh, don't call it a playoff game, right? It was a a, a essentially a tiebreaker uh, for the uh, to decide who won uh, the uh, the uh, the Western Conference in the NFL, the West, right? right. Yeah, it sure was. And in fact, it, they did call it a playoffs game. And I guess that's where the expression, the playoffs come from, because the idea was it was a one game playoff that would decide who the champion of the division was. And I, I think that's really where that expression comes from. And um, so they, they played that that one game playoff, but it was an incredible uh, series of events leading up to that game, and it riveted the nation. I, it, it really showed just how exciting and unpredictable professional football was. So basically, the Colts and the Packers were neck and neck the in, entire season, and then as they got late into the season, the Bears, who were just brutal to the Colts, and uh, one of the Colts claimed they had bounties out on Johnny U every year, um, they cracked his leg or, you know, his knee or something in, in Chicago. And uh, he had to be limp, you know, he was taken off the field limping. I think Shula was under one of his arms, taking him off the field. And, uh, and then it all started to unravel somewhat for the Colts. They were, they were really worried. And, uh, and they were ahead of the Packers the whole season. They looked like they were going to repeat. But now with Unitas getting injured, all of a sudden, everything started to go back in the direction of the Packers. The Packers beat the Colts with uh, Unitas's, um, uh replacement in there and a guy named Gary Quazzo. And not only did they beat the Colts, but they, they really hurt Quazzo very, very badly. He was a young guy from the University of Virginia, and uh, he was thought to be the best backup quarterback in football. And... Uh, he made a terrible call on one play. He, he called a play when the Colts were getting near the end zone. They're going to score just before halftime and take the lead. And he faked a handoff and instead tried to pass it in. And the Packers smelled it out. They ended up intercepting the ball and uh, taking it all the way back almost to a touchdown. I think Bart's, uh, not Bart Starr, but uh, the, the Packers ended up uh, – putting it in. Yeah, it was Bart Starr. Put it in the end zone very quickly from there. And, and so the Colts went from having a, a lead to being, you know, way behind in, in the span of a couple of seconds. 
So then after that, the Packers had a little bit of a lead on them. Uh, they, they injured Quazo in that game and, and took his shoulder out. And the, it was too late for the Colts to get a backup who could play in the postseason. So they started training Tom Maddy, the backup halfback, to be the, the quarterback, and they had to go with him. And he's basically uh, running the ball from the quarterback position and handing it off and barely throwing it, and, and they, they're winning. And they, they won well enough to tie the Packers. The Packers and probably lost and ended up in that tie situation, and they have this one-game playoff. And um, that was really just riveting to the country. These two unbelievable teams, you know, this improbable situation, and they end up going for this one-game playoff with Unitas on the bench and, and a, a halfback that no one knew, assuming his position. So in that game, the Colts basically beat the Packers, and, and uh, the Packers – Went down to get a, a to try a, a tying field goal. They had a very good field goal kicker named Don Chandler. He missed it. You can see it on the tape to the you know, on the film to this day. It exists on YouTube. And for whatever reason, the official called it good. That tied the game. And then in overtime, he kicked another one to win the game. So really, the Colts beat Lombardi's Packers in the heart of their reign the greatest franchise ever supposedly the greatest team ever the greatest coach ever and they beat him with a running back at quarterback or so it seemed you know the, the Colts felt cheated so Shula showed what a brilliant brilliant coach he was he almost pulled this this impossible dream off and he didn't even need Unitas to do it and so it, it was it, to me it was the summit of professional football that was where it hit its highest point yeah, that uh, that playoff game. Uh, it was interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, not only did you have um, uh, Tom Matty, uh, 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 basically, I think he was a third stringer right at this point uh, as quarterback uh, for the Colts. Well, uh, no, he wasn't a third. He was a no stringer. No he was he he not played quarterback for them at all. He was a he was a running back. But you even had on the, on the side of the Packers, Bart Starr was injured as well, right? And and uh, Zeke Prakowski in the first was play of the game, he got injured. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you know, talk about and. It's my understanding too that that uh, that that uh, field goal, the controversial field goal that that many claim was not a field goal. A couple of different things for that. One, uh, the uh, referee uh, or the official uh, uh, running the game at that point is a guy named Jim Tunney, who most fans of the '70s NFL will recognize as uh, probably uh, the quintessential, I don't know, the dean of referees, if you will. I think he was kind right. of the first. That, that's exactly right. Whose name I ever knew. You know, when to the point of like knowing actual referee names, right? Um, to the casual fan, lots of people knew who Jim Tunney was. Um, but then also, too, it's my understanding too that that uh, that decision or con- controversy even led to a change uh, ultimately in uh, the goalposts uh, set up in the NFL. Yeah, well, they the goalposts were weirdly not uniform in the, those days. They were rickety. They looked like sticks that were thrown together. They were at the front of the end zone. Uh, and, and they were very short. So the next year, they made them more uniform. They, they started to look like the goalposts that we know today. And, they, uh, and the uh, goalposts were higher in the air. And they called them the Baltimore extensions because, they, you know, in a, a short for Baltimore got screwed. So we extended them. I did not know that. There you go. See, I always yes. learn something on these little shows. I always learn something. It's pretty amazing. Well, I, I made up the part about Baltimore got screwed, but but they did but they did call them the Baltimore extensions. 
So uh, after, and arguably that could be uh, looked upon as a as a successful, unsuccessful season, right? Uh, you know, they go on with the playoff ball. Yeah. So this is not a team that's that's uh, floundering by any stretch of the imagination. No, not by not by a long shot. I think they lost three games all all season that year. Uh, I think two of them. Uh, Two of them were three regular season games. Two of them were to the Packers, and then they lost that playoff game to the Packers. So, the, it, I mean, they were a dominating team, and and uh, they could barely move the ball in that playoff game. So after the game, Shula said, "Well, it, you know, it really killed us to not have Unitas in there." But uh, uh, in, in reality, he showed everybody that he might not really even need Johnny Unitas at all. It, it was it was an unbelievable moment of triumph for Shula. There's no doubt about that. All right. Well, let's let's get into the uh, the latter years of this uh, of this tandem here because uh, so, okay, so some drama to come, right? Because sixty seven. Okay, nineteen sixty seven. Explain this to me because uh, this is an interesting and amazing anomaly from what I can tell. Right? You have a team uh, that finishes eleven one and two ties. Right? Uh, what's yeah. the winning percentage of that? Nine seventeen or so. And they don't, yeah. make the, and they don't make the playoffs. How does that happen? Yeah, well, not only do they not not make the playoffs, but they finish the season with the best record in in football in, in either the NFL or the AFL, and they didn't make the the playoffs. They they uh, went into the last game of the entire season still undefeated and didn't make the playoffs. So uh, what happened was is that they had weird tie breaking rules in that era. The Colts had tied the uh, Los Angeles Rams in Baltimore earlier in the season. And uh, George Allen, who was the coach at that time, it, it, it's weird how, how uh, it was almost like he had ESP or something. He says, well, this was actually a great game for us, and this tie was great for us because, uh, um, you know, if, if we're still tied with the Colts at the, uh, in the last game of the season, whatever happens in that game, it will determine the champion of the division. Well, he had it all figured out in his head. He was exactly right. And as it turned out, the Colts and the Rams were tied. And, and the, the Packers played a key role in that because they had a game against the Rams the week before, and they had it all wrapped up and then weirdly blew it and, and uh, let the Rams win it in a miracle fashion. And so that's what made the Rams stay tied with the Colts. Till, till, uh, to, or they weren't tied with the Colts, but they were in striking distance of the Colts to that last game of the season. So then it became a winner-take-all in the last game of the season. If, if the uh, Rams uh, won it, they would go to the, uh, to the playoffs, and if the Colts won it, they would go to the playoffs. So even though the Colts were undefeated going into that game, they had to win it just to make the postseason. They, they, they were, what, 11-0-2, or is that right? Yeah, 11-0-2, and then they lost the game, and, and they ended up the season 11-1-2 and and didn't make the postseason. It's incredible. So this also goes into sort of the uh, artificiality of the, uh, of the divisions and the, and the conferences, if you will. Obviously much more uh, complex today, but, uh, I mean, to the point of, you know, the NFL even calling it the Western Conference, right, when last I checked, Boston, Baltimore was on the East Coast and, you know, uh, literally on the coast of, uh, of the Atlantic Ocean, right? So there, there's a, a curiosity sort of there looking backward. But then, you know, also this idea of, you know, arguably the two best record uh, teams, uh, you know, uh, in the in this I guess renamed Coastal Conference at, the, at that point. Um, well, the, the, let me explain the Coastal Conference yeah, please, for a ahead. second. So what happened was 
because the NFL was adding franchises in the 60s in order to keep a pace with the AFL and to strategically oppose them. So they were adding franchises. And so they decided that the uh, NFL would be broken up into two conferences, an Eastern Conference and a Western Conference. And within those two conferences, there would be d- divisions. And so they came up with names like the Coastal and the Century and there were two other names for these divisions. I forgot what the other two names were off offhand. So then, so then the playoffs were extended. It was no longer, uh, you know, an East and a West meeting each other in the championship game. It was first. It was a round of playoffs before that, so that the champion of the East or the West could be determined from that playoff game. Then those two would play each other, and in the. Uh, in the NFL championship game, and then they would go on to the Super Bowl. So it, it all became very complex. And in, in 1967, not only did the Colts finish the season with only one loss, and they went into the last game of the season undefeated, but they beat the, both the, uh, Dallas and Green Bay in the regular season. Uh, and and uh, and so then Dallas and Green Bay went on to play for the NFL championship in that famous ice bowl game, but the Colts had beat them both uh, in, in the regular season and didn't, didn't even make the playoffs. Yeah, and, they, and, and Shula wins Coach of the Year his second time, and Unitas wins the yeah. MVP. Uh, There's this the height of irony there, right? Height of irony. Yeah, they, they, they won it all. They won everything but, but, but uh, the championship. So how, how does that go down in Baltimore, uh, both the fan base as well as with the uh, the players and the coaches? And I mean, was was Rosenblum just like apoplectic about all this? I can't imagine this went down well. No, I think just just the opposite. I think that they were very again like going back to the kind of the mythology that got built up around all this. They were unlucky, you know. In reality, Unitas went into that game against the Rams in in uh, in '67 with a winner take all, and he laid an egg there. He had a terrible game, you know. And and uh, but everybody wanted to believe that that um, that uh, the Colts were victims of bad luck only. And that was the only thing that kept them out, that these bizarre things kept happening to them, but they weren't really looking at what was happening on the field. They had to beat the Rams in the last game of the season. They knew it. The Rams knew it. Everybody in America knew it. It was super exciting. And they laid an egg, and they didn't win. And Unitas played poorly. So uh, these, uh, you know, I, I mean, but instead of it being where Rosenblum was apoplectic, they didn't look at it that way. They looked at it like, well, we're, you know, eventually we're going to win this thing. We're going to get them next year. So what happened the next year? Uh, they, they went through the entire schedule and lost only one game again. Same, same deal. No ties this time. But Unitas was injured in, uh, in, in the preseason, in a preseason game against the Cowboys. He could literally hear something pop in his arm. He could hear it, not feel it, hear it. And, uh, and uh, he, was, he was really out. Shula had had uh, known somewhere in the back of his mind something was wrong with Unitas before it happened, and he went out and got Earl Morrill from the New York Giants for nothing. And the Giants were going were gonna to cut him anyway, and, and Shula ended up getting him for, for literally nothing and brought him in, and he, he won 13, 13 games and uh, beat every team that had cut him over the years and beat the, all the Colts and beat the Packers again, beat the Rams beat all the Colts old enemies and, uh, and won the MVP also. So the Unitas was MVP in 67 and Earl Morrill was MVP in 68. 
and and uh, and they were went zooming into the Super Bowl feeling like kings. So, at what point during the '68 season uh, does Unitas uh, get back to what he might feel to be an ability to play again, or uh, is he? I mean, that, that's a, that's a good question. But because I think he was living in denial about about that one, and so were the fans, and every everybody seemed to harbor this messianic belief that Unitas was gonna was gonna be miraculously cured and come in and save them. But they didn't need a Messiah, and they didn't need to be saved. Everything was going great for them, but they obsessed about how he was feeling and whether he was ready. You know, he still was the center of of attention. Now, did when did he feel like he was ready to play again? He played in in the, their only loss of the year against Cleveland. He was horrible. I think he threw three interceptions or something. I think he had more interceptions than completions. He only had something like eleven attempts, three interceptions, and and I think maybe one, one completion or something atrocious like that. And uh, he he couldn't play. I went and spoke to an orthopedic surgeon about his about what he was experiencing then. And he said, well, he likely uh, had a Tommy John style injury. And he said, but in those days, they didn't have the equipment to be able to look in there and see what was exactly happening, that Tommy John surgery hadn't been invented yet. And if it had been, he would have gotten it and he would have been out for sure for at least one one year. He said, it's rare for a quarterback to get a Tommy John injury. It's more associated with a baseball pitcher but that's exactly what he had. And a Tommy John injury is, is this point in the elbow where all the muscle and the, and the uh, nerves kind of come to a, a single point, and it, it seemed to have uh, been damaged for some time and then popped out of there. And so it was all just kind of flapping around. It was, uh, it was no longer attached to anything. So, he, he, you know, he, he really couldn't play. He didn't look good when he did play. And then, of course, as we know, he came in, in and played in the Super Bowl and, you know, at the beginning of the fourth quarter and he, he didn't play, you know, everybody's like, well, he got a touchdown. He took the team to a touchdown. They should have brought Johnny U in sooner. But he, he didn't he didn't look like a good player in, in Super Bowl three. He, he didn't have the arm strength. Was he chafing uh, or were other people chafing on his behalf? Uh, to somehow oh. get him back to play uh, during the regular season and or the playoffs? But, was everybody basically Well, more, more for the Super Bowl than anything else. I think that's where he, uh, Shula apparently told a newspaper man, or a writer rather, not a newspaper man necessarily, but another writer, that, uh, that Unitas had come to him before the Super Bowl and demanded to play, that he wanted to play in the Super Bowl, and he felt that his past accomplishments uh, warranted warranted it and that he deserved it based on that and Shula said to him well Earl deserves it he was the MVP this year and we're going to go with him you know and that was I think that was one of the big you know final breaking points in their relationship but then you know in the game itself uh Earl played really abysmally it was sad he was he, he had had such a good season and he was such a decent man he played terribly in the first half of the Super Bowl. They came back to him to start the second half. He couldn't do anything with the team. And so then Shula decided to bring Unitas in, which really the only thing that did was kind of bring second-guessing onto Shula's head for the rest of his life. Because no, no matter how great Shula was and everything he accomplished, that was the one 
you know, smelly stain that he couldn't couldn't scrub out of his career was that decision to leave Unitas on the bench supposedly too long. But the one person who debunked that for me was Joe Namath. He said, yeah, sure, he got a touchdown, but, I mean, it's very late in the game, and uh, and we, do you think we're playing slightly different defense knowing that we had a two-score lead and – and uh, uh, or actually, it was a three scores. You know, a three scores the Colts would have needed. So, don't you think we're playing uh, different defense? Yeah, we're letting him do what he wants and let the clock tick. And Unitas, you know, his his craftsmanship on that touchdown drive. I, I can't remember how long it took, but it took extremely long. Tons of time went off the clock as the game was dying, and uh, before they got that that touchdown and. You know, the Jets were basically playing a form of prevent defense. Well, I, I also want to remind our audience in 68, right, the Colts were, um, you know, really, I mean, there were some of you were calling them one of the greatest football teams ever at that point. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, they, they demolished no the doubt Browns about in, it. The, in the NFL championship game, 34 zip. Uh, and that was the only team they had lost to all in the regular season. Right. And, and I, I think it's also important to, I, I guess you could, you can't understate this enough. I think we all certainly know about the whole Joe Namath and the predicting of the win and all that kind of stuff. And, right. and the headiness of the AFL trying to finally equate themselves, even uh, show that they are not only deserve to be merger partners with the NFL, but arguably as good, if not better, on any given day. Um, the right. idea, right, that... Uh, I mean, you can't underestimate. I don't know what the booking, the bookies had as odds. I don't even know if they had odds at this point. But the, the, maybe you can explain to the audience just how much of an underdog the Jets were and how heavily favored the Colts were in this third Super Bowl. Well, the, well they, I don't know about odds either, but they did have points. And the, the Jets were, were something like an 18-and-a-half-point underdog to the, to the Colts. And uh, the Colts just looked like a crusher. And and the Jets were supposedly this uh, the champions of this schlep league, as as Mike Curtis had put it. And, and you know, it, it, to me, it's just baloney. And again, mythology. Nothing could have been f- further from the truth. Uh, the the uh, Jets had one of the greatest coaches who ever li- lived as as their head coach. He knew the Colts uh, in. in an unprecedented situation. I don't think any head coach has ever again known a championship opponent like Weeb Eubank knew those, those Colts. He drafted and developed uh, many, if not most of them. So uh, he, he still knew that roster very, very well. He was very bright coach and Namath was already being looked upon by, by many people as, as the new best player in the game. Uh, Paul Brown said that he or, you know, weeks before the Super Bowl, that he believed the Jets should be the Super Bowl favorite because because of Namath, and nobody else in the league ha- had Namath. He, they said, "Well, could he beat an NFL team?" They, he said, "Absolutely, he could beat an NFL team." And and uh, they asked Lombardi if Namath was good enough to be a star in the NFL. And Lombardi, this was weeks before the Super Bowl. Unquestionably, he's good enough to be a star in the and in, in the NFL. Um. You know, so there were all of these these components. But here was Wee Bubank's genius. He trained his players to run the game themselves. This was one of the reasons why he's he's not remembered as as great. You know, Lombardi looked like the great dictator, you know, pulling the strings on everything, and Eubank almost looked out of control out there, like he didn't have control of anything. But in reality, that was because he can he he prepared his teams 
to 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 win on their own to control the game themselves and Joe Namath I don't know if you know this or not but to this day he's considered a superb play caller he was considered to be an extremely bright quarterback and a great play caller and they had a, a brilliant plan to beat the Colts that day which was that defense it was being hailed as one of the greatest defenses ever it gave up something like 10 points a game for an entire season and it looked like you couldn't beat it well i'm sure we've looked at at that defense and he said look i i have to pick my poison here you know he looked at the one side and it was bubba smith and mike curtis on 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 that side on the right side and on the left side it was um it was uh ordell brazy and and uh, don shinnick were, were the end and the linebacker on the on the other side. Brazy and Shinnick were old veterans who were very, very good players, had long careers. They both went back to the 50s. And on the other side was uh, Bubba Smith and Curtis, and they were the new breed, big, fast, tough. So he had to decide, am I going to go after big, fast, and tough and, and modern, or am I going to go after two guys who are savvy and smart, but their time may be over? And he chose to go after the old men. It was a great choice because Nell ran all over them. All right, well, let's uh, let's uh, go uh, after that year into uh, essentially what uh, what sort of uh, came near the end, which was uh, the 1969 uh, season, which um, was the parting of ways for these two, right? Uh, successful yes. as they each individual individual. Maybe you can describe a little bit of the 69 season, maybe sort of what sort of transpired. And, and where they separately went on their own sort of merry ways, uh, neither of them uh, necessarily uh, in dire straits uh, when you look at the rest of their careers, for sure. Well, you can't just look at the two of them. You also have to look at Rosenblum, too, because he's, he's another key figure in, this, in, in all of this, but particularly in this final season. And uh, he, he was really, I don't know, can, can your listeners take a little salty language or, or should I clean it up? No, go for it. Uh, I mean, this isn't that bad, but he was very pissed, very pissed. So it was almost comical how gushy lovey he was before the Super Bowl and then how pissed he was after the Super Bowl. So before the Super Bowl, they're standing in the locker room. I guess they're in Cleveland. Tom Brookshire's there. You know, everybody's chomping on big fat cigars and and uh, Brookshire is interviewing them. They're all calling him Brookie and you know, and then finally Rosenblum gets interviewed and he, he gushes on Shula. Oh, he says, uh, the, you know, I always said that this was going to be my last head coach in the NFL. And it looks like it's, that's what it's going to be. That Don Shula, he's a fine young man. You know, he, he just went on and on about how great he was. And then uh, after the game, it, he basically never spoke to Shula again. He never spoke to Shula again. He sought out Eubank and, and talked to him and told him, that hiring Shula was the biggest mistake of his life and firing uh, Eubank was the biggest mistake of his life. He admitted the scheme that took place to fire Eubank and apologized. And, uh, and he basically didn't speak to Shula anymore. And then, you know, in the season, Shula and Unitas could barely contain their contempt for each other during the season. At one point, you know, the team was it, the team was never right for 1969 season. And uh, at a certain point, he decided that it was all Unitas' fault that the team wasn't right. And he decided to uh, sit him down for the Bears game. And he was going to start Earl Morrill and Unitas. It looked, it appears as though he popped off to a reporter far out of town, somebody in Louisville where he went to college. 
and said that he wanted to be traded or else retire after the season. He didn't like the way he was being treated. Then later on, he denied it and, you know, kind of used it, you know, kind of smacked at the reporters for making things up. But it was obvious he was really mad. And uh, then they go into that Chicago Bears game. Not only was Unitas on the bench, but one other interesting person wasn't present, and that was Brian Piccolo, who was in a who it was a uh, a back for the Bears who was in the hospital with uh, with testicular cancer, and they were trying to figure out what the problem was. But as you know, he became the subject of the Brian Song movie. But so. Not only did he leave Unitas on the bench, but the but the game you know didn't look good. The Colts weren't doing well on offense the entire game. So in the fourth quarter, with a chance to still win, they brought Unitas in and put Earl Morrill on the bench. And uh, Unitas outfoxed uh, Dick Buckus's defense. They all thought he was going to pass, and they were cheating to the outside to pass rush him. And he just bashed the ball up the middle over and over again until they uh, until they scored the winning touchdown and. And then in the locker room, they, they talked about how great Unitas was, and it really put a spotlight on Shula for, you know, for putting him on the bench and creating all that turmoil. The Bears talked about how great Unitas was. So where does Shula wind up going? How does he, uh, how does he exit uh, the, the team? Well, that done? I mean, I, it looked like he, Shula was going to get fired at the end of the season. He had his worst season in Baltimore, and – it didn't go well, and, and uh, he was not on speaking terms with the owner. He was always barely on speaking terms with Unitas anyway, and uh, there was a lot of tension between them, and it looked like he's going to be fired. So uh, Rosenblum goes on vacation. He's out of the country, like in the uh, – Ernie, of course, he said it was the Orient. I don't know if that means he was in the Middle East or, or in, in Asia somewhere, but he, um, he was out of the country – and a newspaper man in Miami contacted Shula and said, hey, uh, Joe Robbie's looking for a new head coach here. Are you interested? So he said, sure. So then they, they called Rosenblum's son and asked him for permission, which, which they claim he granted. Shula goes down, takes their offer, which included an ownership stake in the Dolphins. And, uh, and then uh, Rosenblum comes back and blows his stacks as he got cheated and they stole his coach and – all of this, you know, kind of uh, drama ensued. But it was unbelievable what Shula pulled off here. So he's on the verge of being fired in Baltimore, and instead he walked away with about the greatest deal any coach ever got, very similar to the one Lombardi got from the Redskins the year before, including the ownership stake, which was really key. Well, it's, it's also interesting, too, because in the immediate aftermath of them parting ways, um, United sticks around. He's there for a couple more years. And lo and behold, what happens with the Baltimore Colts the very next season? The very next season, they win the Super Bowl. And then the very next season after that, the, the uh, Dolphins uh, go uh, start a string of three straight Super Bowls, including two that they win. And uh, they defeat the Colts in the AFC Championship game for the f- first of those Super Bowl trips. So as soon as those two part company, they both win uh, titles. I asked every player if that was, uh, you know, I, I was like, did you, did you realize this? They all professed to not even really have thought about it, and they all said well, that it was just a, just a coincidence. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, you given, especially given this, uh, the, this book and then the focus of this, right, there's, there's some kind of magic there, right, whether, whether it's, uh, you know, adversarial or differing opinions, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, under the same uh, tent, if you will, to get the, get, get the job done, you know, that tension – 
that creative tension, if you will. Maybe that has something to do with it. But uh, you, you cannot deny that uh, these two Hall of Famers, both of them, right, in their own in their own uh, in their own manners, uh, you know, were together very interesting and uh, on, on, on many occasions quite successful, and even separately. And uh, it, it, I think it speaks to just uh, how giant both of them were or are still both with us. Thank thank goodness uh, in in their contributions to the sport. And it's a pretty interesting uh, uh, journey when you sort of describe uh, the times that they were sort of together and uh, perhaps headbutting. Yes, but uh, with some very interesting uh, success together and uh, certainly after the fact as well. Tim, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think everything you just said is exactly, exactly true. It's so interesting that they could push each other to such high heights, but there was some sort of a ceiling on it, too, and they couldn't quite get to where they wanted to go. Part of being what I hope being a good writer, compelling writer, part of that is is to create a, a narrative that really interests people, you know, a flow to the story, if you will. And part of how I do that is, you know, to raise the curtain a little bit on the writer is to I think of like a key word that that kind of permeates the entire book. And I also think of kind of a a key idea that permeates the entire book. For me, the key word of the book was conflict. And it wasn't only Unitas and Shula's conflict, but I tried to show conflict all over the place in the book. The book is filled with all kinds of conflicts between those two, between other players, between other teams and their coaches and quarterbacks, and also in society itself. And the, the phrase that I had in mind when I thought about all this was, is that really two, you know, even great men will, will not succeed, will not achieve the things they want to achieve if they can't cooperate with each other. And on the other hand, I think there's nothing that that men cannot accomplish and women cannot accomplish if if they if they figure out how to work together. If they can't work together, they can't do it. And if they can work together, they can do incredible things together, like like Bart Starr and Lombardi did. All right, the name of the book is Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. Uh, It is uh, available wherever fine books are found, uh, and it is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press, and uh, it's a a great book. It's well put together. Uh, It's exceedingly well-researched. There's some great photography in there. The dust jacket is uh, delightful. Uh, All of those good things uh, await you when you make that purchase. Uh, Like I said, wherever books are found, wherever you find... uh, uh, great sports books. And of course, uh, if you're looking for a place to uh, to purchase it and maybe give a little love to the show and at the same time, well, by all means, uh, just flip on over to goodseatsstillavailable.com, our website, and uh, just search up this episode. I think it's number 84, uh, our interview with Jack Gilden. And uh, just click on the link there. There's a, there'll be a picture of the book and there's a, a link to the, um, there's a text link to the book, whatever. That's going to take you to Amazon. You just uh, click on through there. Maybe you get a little discount coupon in there and we'll get a shekel or two of love uh, for your doing so. And we appreciate that. And of course, any of the books or, or other forms of media or items that we mention here uh, or, uh, you know, think are related to the things we talk about, the topics on the show, uh, you'll find a whole treasure trove of those on our website as well. So by all means, click early, click often and make a couple of purchases. And we uh, we appreciate that. It's probably the, the least you can do for your pal, Tim, 
uh, and helping keep this show going. We appreciate that. Good Seats, still available.com. Not only will you find all the old episodes uh, of this little show, Graham, but you will also find uh, all of our social media links. On uh, Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us. You can click to all those things from our website. Uh, you can also uh, send some email to us. Uh, and uh, if you want to send that directly without going to our site, fine, be that way. Just send that to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, let's see, what else can you do on the site? You can sign up for our newsletter. We send out uh, to uh, various uh, hundreds now, almost thousands right now, early thousands, uh, yeah, thousands of uh, folks who have signed up to get our little alerts to let them know what uh, what content is out there this week and uh, how else they can interact with the show. You can do that there too. Uh, let's see. Well, I can't promote more than that, I guess, right? Uh, but again, goodseatsstillavailable.com. We appreciate you checking that out. And that's the absolute best way to keep on, uh, in, uh, on top of what's going on in the show. And uh, last but not least, we, of course, need to thank our friend Jerry Payne. Don't we? Of course we do. Jerry Payne, who just, you know, stays up late uh, week after week, burning the midnight oil to put our little pieces together. Uh, and he, the uh, chief cook and bottle washer uh, for this show editorially, uh, production-wise, and of course, his uh, his pals at uh, Podfly Productions are worth your time as well. If you're looking to get into podcasting or just need some uh, editorial or production uh, assistance, you can do no better uh, than to check out Podfly Productions. And of course, you can find them at, say it with me, podfly.net. All right, I am done for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, until next week, God bless you, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you again with another great episode, we hope. And uh, again, thank you for listening. Bye, guys. Bye.